You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. What an awesome morning, amen? I still have not learned to bring an extra shirt when I do baptisms, so when you hug somebody that's soaking wet, then this is pretty much how it is for the rest of the day. Uh, but I, I love baptisms. It's really powerful. Uh, and man, it, it's a, such an incredible celebration. I loved hearing uh, Alfredo and his testimony. Just such an awesome, awesome uh, young man. Really encouraged. If you would like to get baptized, I really encourage you, please come talk to Katie and myself. And uh, maybe you were baptized as a child, and we really respect that, um, and we celebrate you. But maybe you're wanting to make that decision now personally uh, as an adult. And I really encourage you also make that step as well. It's not that it counteracts anything or it's like, oh, double water, now we're going back. But feel free. If you, uh, if you want to make that personal faith decision and saying, you know what, really, you know, in a new season of life, and I want to say, hey, uh, I'm a believer. If you say I'm a follower of Christ and you've never been baptized, I really encourage you. That is the next step as given by Jesus that if you say you're a follower of Christ and you follow, that's your next step. Um, I really encourage you in that. It's going to be good. And man, presence night tonight. It's been awesome. Uh, I was with the men of our church. Uh, we have been camping for the past two days up on the rim. Men, let me go the, oh, yeah. It was good. Uh, it was fun. Uh, our men's director, Dave, did an incredible job putting it together. Can we thank him? And it was super good. Um, it, you know, just hanging out with guys and having opportunities. We're going to have more opportunities like that. And how it usually goes is the first 15 days of us saying that, you know, the sign-up, no one signs up. And then the last two days of us saying there's a sign-up, everyone signs up. So I encourage you, hit that first day. Just lock it in and, uh, and come be a part. And it was, it was a blast. It was fun. I think all my clothes still smell like campfire. You know, one of those campfires where you're taking, like, whole trees and putting them in the campfire. <laughs> it's like we just, everyone was cold, so we just kept making it bigger. It started small. And then we just kept, it was like an eggplant shape for a while. And then more guys were whining, so we made it even bigger, right? It was just, like, constantly growing. <laughs> um, because I don't know if you knew this, but, like, it's cold in this state somewhere. Um, if you've not explored Arizona, let me tell you, it does not all look like this. Some of it's our mutt. Some of it is much colder, um, and that gets real super quick when that sun goes down. But it was a great time of connecting. I had fun. Um, but here today, we're going to finish our Undefeated Love series that we began on Easter, and I hope you've been enjoying it. I don't know how many sermon series you've heard on the Song of Solomon. I want to tell you as uh, your pastor, it does take a little work to preach on the Song of Solomon, uh, but I'm glad that we did it. Amen? I'm glad that we talked about it. Uh, next week. Chandler said we got Mother's Day, and it's just going to be a blast. We're doing a standalone. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about Song of Solomon on Mother's Day. So you can feel confident bringing your mom, knowing that I'm not going to talk about fawns or towers, right? You can just bring her and uh, feel renewed, but it's going to be a great day. Bring your mom, bring a spiritual mother, bring someone in the community who's a mom that maybe their kids are not around, but you could still celebrate them. Uh, we, we really want to honor moms next week. And celebrate that. But this week, we're going to talk about marriage. So we're going to talk about, yeah, married couples, let me hear you say, yeah, let's go. Uh, we're going to talk about marriage today. We're going to talk a little bit about weddings today. How many of you, like, love going to weddings? See people getting married? Look at how many people that actually is. All right, no, shame. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I love officiating weddings. That's what I'm going to say. I love officiating weddings. Um, I'm not like a big um, uh, wedding fan as a young man. I don't know why I just never really wanted to go. I don't know if it was the long amounts of sitting or that I don't like salmon and capers or I'm not a big fan of dancing to mid-2000s pop music. I know some people that's a jam. My wife, my wife would low-key dance right now if we converted this into a dance floor and played some like mid-2000s pop music. She would get down, no shame. And that's why she's the better part of this equation is purely because of her joy and her excitement Excitement. And so she makes me come out with her. I will say, uh, when I had a daughter, that, like, changed how I, when I would allow myself to dance. Because, like, you get so much grace if you're dancing with a daughter. If you're a guy alone dancing on the dance floor and, and you don't know how to dance, hello, um, you're just kind of, like, in your space, like, even right now, right? It's like, I'm, I'm here. I have rhythm, I'm in the bubble, and I'm just moving. Someone get me, like, a drink to hold, and then I just point, like, I see, oh, hey. 
and then I'm out, and that's it. And it's like, did we see you on the dance floor? Yeah, you did, right? But um, now that I have a daughter, you just like go with her and you jump, and everyone's like, oh. And then you're like, oh yeah, I, I could dance. I mean, I would be doing it, but I'm with her, you know. And then you spin her, and that's it. It's just spinning. So, but I, I like weddings. I really love officiating weddings because when I officiate weddings, I, I, I gotta do all this, you know, work up beforehand and preparation, and it always reminds me of just how important these ceremonies are. It's hard, like, if you're in that season of life when you're at a wedding, like, every four and a half days, eventually, like, you, it wears off uh, the, the importance of it. But weddings are actually very, very important, and every element is really important. And some of the most crucial elements in a wedding are the vows. Now, if you want me to officiate your wedding, you are going to repeat or say I do to the vows that I have written because I refuse to let uh, people I do their wedding write their own vows. And that's because most people are not good at it. <laughs> and what usually happens is that one party spent like 12 weeks anxiously mulling over eight pages of information, and one party wrote like a paragraph on the back of a napkin before they had to walk out. And so the guy comes out and he's like, from, from the day I saw you, I love, I pledge to pick up the socks and take out the trash. I love you for it. You're so beautiful, right? That's, that's one side. Maybe sometimes that's the guy. Sometimes it's the gal, not the public speaker. Then there's the person who has like eight pages of notes. It's chronological. It's like going through every part of their relationship. Day one, saw you from across the parking lot, thought I loved you, went home, prayed to God, asked him, put you on my dream board, found pictures of you on the internet. And they're like, the other guy's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, that didn't come from pre-marriage counseling at all. And it's like, day two, still love you, think we're getting married. Like, day three, bought a ring for you to give to me. Day four, returned ring. That was too much, right? It's like going through this huge long list of vows. It's like, I promise that, like, anyways, all this stuff. And so I have always, again, please, if you wrote your own vows, please know I'm joking that all this is jest and that you don't get offended later. Be like, we are our own, wrote our own vows. They were very special. I'm sure they were. But, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like, I'm sure it was great. Again, my point is that the vows are a special moment in a marriage ceremony. And so when I do weddings, again, you know, when I, when I officiate weddings, there are the I do vows, the, the, uh, the uh, affirmation vows, and then there are the exchange of ring declaration vows. There's two vows. The I do vows go like this. I just did a Marcus and Kristen's wedding, an incredible couple in our church, and they got married here. It was a really cool ceremony. Uh, during COVID, so there was like 12 people in this table, and there was this epic like flower thing. It was very cool, but we did their wedding. And or I did I officiated their wedding. Kitty was here, and uh, <laughs> this is the I do vows, right? And you say this. I said, uh, Marcus, believing this to be the will of God for your life. Remember, they're looking in each other's eyes very deeply, and believing that you should live with Kristen, his wife, the rest of your days. Do you take Kristen to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you vow to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her? In sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And then it is his job to say, I do. And then we, then we, uh, Kristen does it as well. Says, I do. Normally everybody can nail that. The, the one that causes a little more stress is the repeat after me. So first of all, you got to have the exchange of rings. And I say, placing the ring on their left hand, the, the other left hand, <laughs> repeat you'd be shocked how many people get that wrong you get you're standing in front of 150 of your family members you got to remember your right from your left you'd be amazed how quickly you forget which is which and then I say repeat after me and so uh, I read this and I say okay repeat after me and I say this ring I give to you and they repeat as a reminder of my love and I pledge to you my loyalty and devotion until death do us part in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a really powerful moment right there. And I think often we've, we've heard it so many times until death do us part in this covenant moment. Like, we, we've heard it so many times that we kind of gloss over it, and we're just like, yeah, kiss the bride. Come on, man. Like, we're ready to go eat this catering we spent $8,000 on. But this is a really profound moment. Until death do us part 
We're standing before God. That's what, this is the kind of marriage I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kind of marriage. I'm standing before God, and I'm making a covenant before God until death do us part. That is a powerful thing to say before the Lord. And right now, maybe you're in this place, and you don't even believe in the Lord. I think we could all say, even if you are not a believer yet in Jesus Christ, that that is a powerful thing to stand before your Lord and say, I will do this until I die, if you actually mean it. The hard part is that our culture so often, I think, doesn't really mean it. We say until death because it's like a religious exercise. We're routine people. And so, yeah, that's what you say. You repeat after me. You do the thing. You say the vow. And we say until death does do us part. But that is a powerful statement. The hard part is I think if we look at culture, even culture in the church, I don't think marriage often displays this because what we see is an a, a epidemic of divorce in culture. People not committed to this until death do us part. But when we look at the symbolism of covenant, we look at the importance of covenant, can I tell you today that I think if we understand covenant, and we understand the covenant with God, and we understand God's covenant with us, it reaffirms and it secures this covenant we make with our spouse. And maybe today, maybe today you have a spouse. Maybe you don't have a spouse. Maybe you did have a spouse. Maybe you aren't sure if you ever will have a spouse. Can I tell you what we learn from the principles expressed in Scripture and about the covenant relationship with God and Him with us are still for every person regardless of your marital status. The principles of God are still good regardless of your relational status. So as we talk about marriage today, even if you're not married, please hear how deeply God loves you today. That's the point. But I want to talk a little bit about weddings, uh, why we do the things we do. Like, why do we, you know, I talked uh, the other week, why do we stand in a certain way and on a certain side? You can go back and listen to the podcast for that. Why do we hold hands? Why do we stand together? Right? Why do we exchange vows? Why do we go through the rhythms that we do? A lot of our uh, wedding symbolism is incredibly important, and pretty much everything we do in the wedding is incredibly symbolic. And a lot of the symbolism that we get in our weddings comes down from a Judeo-Christian, which comes down from a, Jew from a uh, Jewish culture, which comes down and that we would get from what we would call like Old Testament Jewish culture. And we are inheriting this symbolism. And weddings are crucially, hear me, crucially symbolic. Crucially symbolic. Marriages are a covenant until death, and so marriages are using symbolism to illustrate uh, this covenant until death. And, and hear me say this before we jump in. Just like I said the other week, God created sex. God created this covenant marriage to be an illustration, to be a symbolic representation of His covenant love with us. This is the marriage I'm talking about. I'm not talking about going to the courthouse to do that. that. That is a relationship, but you're entering it, and if you did that, God bless you. I'm talking about this symbolic representation here in this covenant, uh, covenant wedding, this covenant relationship, this covenant marriage. And so uh, what we're going to look at, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament Jewish weddings. And I know when you drove in today, you thought, oh my goodness, please, I hope the pastor is going to tell us all about Old Testament Jewish weddings. Because the only thing more exciting than going to a wedding is hearing someone describe to you a wedding at 10 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> right? But I promise it will enrich your life, trust me. Except for Alec. He apparently is just going to leave. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. It was, it was right there, man. I know you're doing something important. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been hanging out with a bunch of guys for two days, so it's like I can't not rip on somebody when they do something. Um, but you got a pregnant wife, and I yeah, appreciate it. What a servant. Can we give it up for Alec? What a servant-hearted man. There you go. <laughs> um, let's talk about Old Testament Jewish weddings then. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I want to I look at this as kind of a foundation, and, and we'll, we'll see the connection as we go farther. But uh, in the Old Testament, a wedding would start by an arrangement. There would be an arranged marriage between two parents, meaning that parents would look for other parents who were raising uh, godly young women and men of God. And uh, I got to say, as somebody who has a daughter, I'm kind of for this. <laughs> Please know I'm kind of joking. I mean, if you know, if you got someone decent in mind, come talk to me after service. Um, but like, as I've raised kids, I've thought like, man, like, 
Who, who is it? Who is it that my daughter's going to marry? Like, who is that person? And I got to say, if you're raising young men, I hope you're doing a good job, because I am. Uh, I'm making, like, a tough girl. The other day, I, I took her out. She said, I taught her how to shoot. Uh, she loves to read. She loves scripture. She likes to preach. She, she's about it. So I just want to let you know, if you're raising just, like, a lazy bum who only likes to play Call of Duty, he can't compete. She's going to stomp him out. So I'm, I'm looking. If you got one, let me know. If you're raising just like a, just a hardcore six-year-old, uh, you know, well, we can talk after. But <laughs> I just got to make her own choice. But I mean, we can still talk. Um, but they would make an arrangement. Like, okay, who has like a, a godly person? This isn't like some cultures. They'd be like, you. And then they would choose. And it's like, we're going to marry our kingdoms together. This is not what I'm saying. I'm saying they would look for somebody godly. And they would say like, okay, that's a godly family. You know what? You should talk to them. Uh, culture was all about family in that time, and so they would uh, look for that family, they would arrange a marriage, and the bride and groom would enter a season of preparation, and the bride was called a kala, someone say kala, and the groom was called, I know I'm going to botch this, I don't speak very good Hebrew, it was called a chatan, we'll just say that for now, chatan, and they would enter the season of preparation, and this season was called the betrothal, and the betrothal season for them was basically a formal agreement. So kind of how we see marriage now, that was how they saw what, you would, what we would call engagement. It was a formal agreement of the wedding. And so they would prepare, get this, for a minimum of one year. How many of you would just love young people? You're like, I would love to have a, just a year and a half, two-year engagement. No one, exactly, because <laughs> that sounds horrible. Uh, but what I would say principally in this, though, I'm not saying eight months, a year, six months, whatever. I'm not putting a month. What I am saying is there is an important principle in marriage that a great marriage takes preparation. I think what's amazing to me is how many people prepare for their wedding, but they don't prepare for their marriage. Listen, Anyone can get married, meaning like any two people in a relationship can basically choose, and if you have the right paperwork, can enter into a marriage, right? But to be married, that takes some work. Come on, married people, right? To be married takes some work. And what blows my mind is that we'll spend 20000 30000 This is what wedding costs now, right? $30,000 on a marriage. And then we go back and go, have we spent that? Let's say you've been married for 10 years. Have you spent $30,000 in that 10 years working on your marriage? Because if not, you just spent thirty grand to get married. But here's the question. We'll spend all this money to get married, and then someone will be like, man, we're just, we're not connecting. Man, you know what? I just want to grow in our marriage, or maybe our marriage is good, but man, I want it to be better. I want to step into what God has. And I'm like, man, if there's a great marriage conference, you should go. Oh, we don't have money for that. I'm like, really? I saw what you paid for the food at your wedding. You should have saved money. And you should have paid to invest in your marriage and into your relationship. And one of your vacations, instead of going to the beach, you should go to the beach with your wife after you go and you enrich your marriage and you grow your marriage and you straighten. See, marriage, it takes work. What are you doing to prepare your heart to be married? What are you doing to prepare your relationship to be married? Well, I got a bunch of grooms around me that just celebrate me. That's great, but who is speaking that truth and preparing you for that moment? It takes preparation. I thought about this this week. How much money did I pay to get married? And how much money, if I were to like count it up, to have I spent on my marriage? And I would say, in t I've been married for 12 years this year. I've been with my wife for 17. So this year I'll cross the threshold where I have been in a relationship with my wife longer than I have not been in a relationship with my wife, which is crazy to think about uh, and awesome. And she's like, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, God has blessed me. Um, again, better half of the equation. But I think about this. How much money have I spent investing purely into my marriage? It's like one of the best places I could probably invest my money is in my relationship and my marriage. How much? And I thought, okay, that was for me. That was in my heart. But it takes preparation. And so what would happen then is um, the groom would go and he'd be prepared by the father. And the father would disciple the groom in the Torah. And the Torah is what we would call the first five books of the Old Testament. But they would disciple them in the Torah. And the groom would learn from the word of God how to be a spiritual leader in his home. Hear me. It, men, if you're going to get married, you will not incidentally become the spiritual leader of your family and your relationship. You will not accidentally. And so we love the scriptures like men are the leaders and they lead the way. Yeah, they lead the way if they put in the work. 
If not, you're just telling someone to be quiet while you don't actually step up and lead. And so the, the man was taught and discipled into how to lead in his relationship. And at the same time, the bride was taken, the bride-to-be was taken by her mother, and she was discipled in the ways of the Lord and the things of God to be prepared to be a godly wife. Now, something for her is that her purity would be strongly guarded because her purity was seen as the greatest gift that she could give her husband. Her virginity, her purity was considered as one of the greatest gifts she could give. And so there was often a very careful eye given to preserving purity of those in your family. In fact, let, let's jump to it. If you have your Bible, open to Song of Solomon, or yours might say Song of Songs, chapter 8. Chapter 8. The words are going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bible, and uh, we're going to read it together. But Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 8. 8, 8. Now, if you've been with us, you, you kind of might know this dynamic, but let me fill you in. Is There's the Shulamite woman who's... Um, and Solomon, who are riding back and forth in this poetic narrative, and it's, it's them, and there's these, these parts, and it's, it's poetically expressing what's happening. And, but then you have the others. So you have, like, the women of Jerusalem. Um, you have what are potentially her brothers in this portion. You have others that are speaking in. So, like, uh, if you picture this poetic narrative, others are now answering this, asking this question that she's going to answer. And so here are the brothers speaking out um, about the family speaking out about somebody else. And, they, and they're asking for advice. They say this, verse 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Okay, so the poetry here, she's saying she has no breasts. It's, I don't know what your uh, translation might say, depending if it's word-for-word word literal or thought-for-thought, thought, capturing the thought of what's happening. Um, basically, she's a girl. Their sister, their younger sister, has not entered pu puberty yet and is getting ready, is trying to just be prepared for the day when she would be married. It's not yet, but she will be married eventually. And they're like, hey, they're asking the Shulamite woman, how do we— you seem like you did it right. How do we do that? Right? It's like when you see somebody who's done something well a season ahead of you, you go and ask them, hey, it looks like you did this well. How do I do that? Right? So they're not trying to marry prepubescent girls here. That's not what this is saying. Nor are they commenting on the state of her purity in the sense like she's not being pure. They're just saying, listen, like, hey, Shula, my woman, it seems like you have done this really well. How do we make sure that our sister, come on, brothers, you know what I'm talking about, like, how do we make sure that our sibling also has this amazing, incredible relationship, this incredible marriage, right? Like, you're protective of your siblings. How do we make sure that this happens? And so here's what they say. If she's a wall, if she is a wall, if she is protecting herself for when she'll be married, if she's protecting herself in her purity, it says she'll be blessed. She's going to have battlements of silver. Then it says, if she's a door, well, that's kind of visually self-explanatory. If she opens and is vulnerable to the advances of sinful men, he says, we're going to enclose her with cedar, meaning we need to help guard her purity because it's important. That's what they understood. They said, listen, this is an important thing, and we have a responsibility to protect her, to encourage her, to strengthen her, and to watch over her. You still with me? And so the Shulamite woman answers and says of herself in verse 10, I was a wall. It's just so great to read these scriptures. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as the one who finds peace. I bet. Right? Right? She's saying, I uh, was developed well, and uh, I'm, that is bringing my husband some peace. Because I'm... <laughs> Okay, you guys, we had a message a couple weeks ago. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. But what she's saying very, very importantly here, she's like, she says, I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. I was in his eyes as one who finds shalom. Very important word. She says, I was a wall. I preserved myself in my purity. I, I said from the beginning, we're not letting the foxes into the vineyard to destroy what God has given. I was a wall. I was prepared. And then in the moment, I was open to him, and he found shalom. I was in his eyes as one who finds shalom. 
as one who finds satisfaction and contentment, perfect peace. I bring peace to the one who is my peace. It's so hard today talking about purity. Uh, I don't think it was any easier back in their day either. We think we're the pinnacle of sexual uh, enlightenment, but trust me, we don't hold a candle to the ancient Near East when it comes to uh, sexual expression, uh, deviancy, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but we live in this weird space when it comes to talking about purity because as soon as I talk about purity, a lot of people will feel judged, for one, uh, as if, like, it's my job to tell you your, your, your past somehow uh, keeps you from the hope of the future, which it does, it does not. No matter what you have done, there is hope and healing in Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. There is no condemnation in Christ. There's only new life. I'm not here to put you down for the decisions you've made. I'm only here to tell you that there's freedom in Jesus Christ if you'd receive it. Amen. But we struggle a little bit because it feels restrictive. Why? Because we just we want to do what we want to do. So well, wouldn't God want me to be happy? I love this person. Wouldn't God want me to be happy? Just do what I want to do. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And I would say, kind of. Kind of. Uh, it's kind of like in, has anyone seen Princess Bride? You know when he keeps saying, inconceivable, right? It's like, <laughs> eventually, under the giant goes, or um, the Spaniard guy is like, I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> We're like, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. This is making me happy. And God's like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Shouldn't God want me to be happy if he loves me? Exactly. God wants you to have peace. He wants you to have shalom. Because peace brings contentment. Hear me today. Worldly happiness, though it's great, will never bring the contentment that godly peace brings, right? Worldly happiness will never bring godly peace. But godly peace will always bring contentment in this world. It will always bring the joy and happiness that comes from Him. But that means that our hearts must be for Him. And culturally, the difficulty that we have, and I'm trying to be so gentle here because I want you to hear freedom and not judgment. Culturally, the problem is that we become really good at playing married, and so subsequently, we've also become really good at playing divorced. And here's what happens, is that we practice marriage, we practice divorce, right? We, uh, a guy unites with a girl, and they break up. A guy unites with a girl, and they break up. A guy unites with a girl, and they break up. And it's just part of it. I'm not talking about dating here. Here, I'm talking about we, we unite. We, we act as married people. We pretend to be married. We act in the privileges of married marriage without the covenant before God of marriage. And then we wonder why that's not blessed by the Lord. We act out the, the covenant privileges without the covenant commitment. We're using each other under the guise of something that is more beautiful and full and free and hopeful. And what happens is, then, though difficult and brutal, then when that breakup happens, because there is not covenant commitment, there isn't a stand-before-God commitment, there isn't a covenant moment. It's like, I love him, this would never happen. Trust me, anybody that's been around long enough will say, unless there's a covenant, there's, there's probably a chance it's not happening. And so that breakup and that break apart and that hurt and that pain becomes practice as well. And the hard part is we become good at practicing being divorced. And so we separate in those moments of difficulty and struggle and problems. We, we, we become divorced from one another when there's no spark. I'm just not sure if they're the right person and we move on. The hard part is then when you do enter into a covenant marriage, that same mindset exists. I don't know if they're the right person. If you married them, they're the right flipping person. It's too late. You married them. Make it work. Hear me. I'm not talking about if there's abuse or anything like that. Please, please no. I, I hope you guys would know that. What I'm saying is we have a responsibility to say, I'm not going to play marriage. I'm going to make a covenant commitment. I'm going to preserve this so it's important. And, man, if I haven't, I'm going to let God make me new. And then I'm going to preserve it because it's important. That's the freedom. Isn't that amazing that Jesus doesn't have to do that, but he does? 
He doesn't have to make us new. He doesn't have to restore us, but he does. He loves us so much. We say, oh, the God in the Bible is so mean. Really? Because the God in the Bible that I see is the guy where people are constantly choosing themselves as God and then realizing how that plan leads to nothingness. And like Alfredo said, it doesn't lead to hope. The light at the end of the tunnel is not hope, right? And we choose the other way. And then God's going, well, I'll still restore you and renew you because I love you. I'll still restore you because I love you and renew you. Bring you back into purity. This is why covenant is so important. Let, let's go back, if you're still in the Song of Solomon, go back, uh, chapter 8, verse 6. It says this. Set me as a seal upon your heart. This is the woman talking. She's talking to her beloved here. She's talking to her husband. She's saying, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Now, this isn't like jealousy, like, you know, hey, man, don't talk to my girl, like this weird, like, bro-y machismo, like, kind of that, like when people, you know, it's not that. It's saying, like, this deep devotion for someone, this pursuit to be be jealous for someone, this deep sense of pursuit and love. Uh, it says, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, meaning he gave everything to try to buy it, he would be utterly despised, meaning you can't buy me love. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart. That word seal is chotham, meaning a signet ring, as a signet ring. Um, have you ever seen, like, medieval movies, and uh, they would have, like, the ring, and they, like, drip, like, the, the drip of wax, and they take the ring, and they, like, press it in, and it's, like, a sign, and they give you the letter, and you need that because they would send you to do things like, hey, man, could you go ahead and go tell this country we're at war with them? You'd be like, what? <laughs> it's like, don't worry, I'm giving you my seal. It's like, oh, okay, cool. You're going with some authority. So if they kill you, they're, killing, they're attacking the authority. So you feel not a lot better, but a little bit better, right? <laughs> right? A little bit. Why? Because it was a sign of authority. It was a stamp of authority. It set me as a seal, as a stamp, a commitment with authority behind it, a commitment with all of your life and everything behind it. When they would do transactions, they would stamp it with a signet ring, or they would give someone a signet ring as the sign of their authority, and they would take that ring, and they would go with it, and if someone, and they had to do business on their behalf, they would be doing it with the authority of that person. And so she's saying to her husband, listen, Give me that deep commitment upon my life. Make me so secure in the covenant of our relationship because I want the kind of love that is as strong as death. I want the until death do us part kind of covenant. I don't want to be walking around here on eggshells hoping that if I do something wrong, this thing's breaking apart. I don't want to be afraid of the storm that might come against us or the season that might come against us because I don't know how secure that we are. I don't know if we'll hold on. I want the until death. You got to kill me to get me out of this marriage. Until death. I want a powerful love. I want a mighty love. I want a burning love. I want a love I, I know I got to work for. I know I got to put effort into it. I know that this is not something that's just going to live and stir up, right? I got to throw logs on this fire. I got to throw trees on this fire. I need to build it. I need to stoke it. But it is rested and secures in the coals of the covenant. And so they had this understanding. This is, in Old Testament, in these marriages, in these weddings, they had this understanding. This is a covenant. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Now you're dying to hear about how this Old Testament wedding continues, so let's do that. Let's do it. Okay, so the groom would go to the bride's father, and he would present a marriage contract, like a um, ketubah. Ket ketubah, I said it wrong. Uh, covenantal agreement, basically. Uh, he would present this covenantal agreement that said, I vow to honor to love, respect, and care for your daughter. That kind of sounds familiar, right? If you've ever done vows or said I do, comes from this moment. I, I basically agree contractually <laughs> to care for your daughter. And then they would uh, pay the dowry, the bride price. Now, as I say this, it sounds like he just bought himself a wife. Uh, <laughs> And very importantly, not what's happening here. You should never buy or sell any human being ever for any reason. I, I, I think. I feel confident saying that 100%. Uh, 
But what they're doing here is not purchasing a wife per se in the sense of uh, buying her like she's at a market. He's presenting a gift to honor the parents for discipling and nurturing the daughter, but also recognizing and honoring the wife while he does it, recognizing that in order for them to be united together, that life has a price for it. Meaning like, He's showing her value. I find you valuable. Basically, it's like this. I, I'm trying to think if someone came and said, hey, I, wa I want to marry, uh, marry your daughter, and I'm, I, pro I really promise I'm going to honor, respect, and cherish her, I would say, prove it. Prove it. I, I bet. Yeah, she's good looking. I bet you vow to honor and respect it. Yeah, I, I want to know. And oftentimes, if they didn't have the money for a bride price, you know what they would do? They would work for it. Think about that. Jacob just working for seven years for a bride, giving a different one, having to work seven years for the one. Imagine working 14 years for a woman. That's a long engagement. But there was a value there. It says, I value. It was not about purchasing value. It was about the value of a life that they so deeply represented that if you want to be united, if there is a, a life being united in a relationship here, that it was a generous expression of love to say that it costs something. See, we don't like things to cost anything anymore. But life costs. And so there was this moment of honoring the wife, and honor by honoring her family. Hear me, married people, listen to my notes, but if you want to honor your wife, honor her family. You're like, you don't know her family. Well, doesn't matter. You can still honor people that don't like you. You can find a way, because you have the Holy Spirit. It says, love your enemies. Did you know that's what we're supposed to do? Pray for your enemies. So if your in-laws are your enemies... You can still honor them by praying for them and loving on them. So here's what happened. The groom in this moment then, he would go to the bride, and he would put wine in a chalice, and then she would have a choice. And I don't know, maybe we should still bring this in, but she would have a choice. She could drink the wine, or she could pour it out. <laughs> the, I mean, the bride price has already been paid, so I guess the parents don't care either way. Um, but she had a choice to drink it. And this is, I think, a really powerful moment here. It, it, when they would fill the cup with the wine and she would have a choice, they were making kind of a coven covenantal, a formal commitment here by drinking of the wine that we are preparing to step into a covenant relationship. And wine was very, very important in Jewish culture because the wine of Passover symbolized something so powerful. So um, if you were here on Palm Sunday, you might have heard me say, but Palm Sunday, uh, we, we remember uh, Jesus riding in. But before that, we have Passover. And on Passover, uh, we have the wine and the bread. And it's symbolic. The wine is symbolic of the blood that was shed. What blood? Well, Israel was in Egypt as slaves. And they cried out to God for salvation. So God sends salvation, but Moses refused to let the people go. And so God sends plague after plague after plague. And finally, God says, I'm going to send the last plague. And it's going to come over all over Israel, and it's going uh, to kill all the firstborn, which is a, a sermon for another day, or you can go back to Palm Sunday and listen. And, but he says, but if you take a perfect spotless lamb, and you put the blood on the doorpost, judgment will pass over you, and you will receive not only freedom from slavery, but you will be free of all judgment. That judgment will pass over you and your home. And so they're freed from slavery. God takes them out to the desert, and he leads them to the mountain, and he makes a covenant with them. And in this, they remember Passover for thousands of years. The symbol of the wine representing the blood of the covenant that was for them, that freed them and gave them salvation and came out and made a covenant with them. This is all foreshadowing the New Testament. See, everything that we see that's symbolic is a shadow of what's fulfilled fully and completely in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? 
When you see Scripture, it's all one thing. It's all one story from beginning to end. It's all the thread of Christ from, from creation all the way to Revelation. It's a story of Christ. And so for us, Jesus, when he comes, he is the, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And Jesus, in his blood, Jesus dies on the cross for us to pay our debt so that we might be free from slavery, so that the judgment and the wrath for our sins would pass over us and that we would receive the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus, on the night before he's taken to be executed, he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood, which is a new covenant for you. So she drank it, which, you know, that tense moment. Then what would happen is the mothers would take plates. And I like this tradition. I think if you get engaged, you should do this, is they would take plates, and they would smash them on the ground. And it was kind of this symbolic, and it was not pretty cool, just smashing up some plates. They would smash the plates on the ground, and it was symbolic that what has been done here cannot be undone. Uh, I always have a coffee mug with me, and often that coffee mug ends up on the floor of my car, and my truck doesn't have lips, it's just everything rolls out, and so uh, I've had many a coffee cup meet its demise on the asphalt, and so I tried to put that coffee cup back together, and I don't know if you know this, when uh, porcelain breaks, pieces go a thousand miles away. Somewhere in China is a small child picking up a piece of my coffee mug. How did this get here, right? It just, it goes everywhere. So when you try to put it together, there's still like pieces left. There's a permanency to what happens. You smash a plate on the ground with your mother-in-law, it's permanent. I'm saying bring it back. So they would smash the plate, and then the groom would place a veil over the bride's eyes. Very symbolic. This represented her purity. Represented that no man could approach her, meaning no man could come and, and call upon her, for she had been veiled. It meant she was promised to be married. It meant, hey, look, someone has paid a price for her life. He's come in and honored the family. And she's to be united with him. And then once that was accepted, you're like, that's a lot. How many are like, that's a ton of stuff, right? I feel like it still doesn't pale in comparison to all of the engagement stuff we do now, where you got to go like an air balloon and like arrange sheep on the ground, and then you descend, and then there's like a photographer, and like eight of your friends, and, you're, yeah, and someone like rises up out of the ground, and then they like confetti poppers, right? It's not even close, so, but it still is a lot. But this is all symbolic. This, I mean, maybe the air balloon is symbolic. I don't know. Christ descending? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but this is symbolic. So once accepted, the groom would say this. He would say, I need to go away to prepare a place for you. And so the groom would go to his father's house, and he would begin to build this room, this place called the chuppa. If you were here for the time I talked about sex, then you know why he was so motivated to build the chuppa, because that's where they were going to do it. And so they would, he would go and he would build this place. And his father was responsible, all joking aside, his father was responsible for making sure that he cut no corners. His father told him when he was done building it. Think on that. And so when people would ask the groom, when are you getting married? He would say, whenever my father says. Some of you that have gotten married, how many of you would love to just leave that up into your father's hands? Some of you have been like, you're getting married today. Get out of my house. <laughs> but at the time, it was left up to the father to say when it was done. And so the father, when it was done, when the time had come, he would look at his son and he would say, I'm now sending you to be with your bride, to go to your bride and to bring her to the place that you prepared for her. So what would they do? They would gather, he'd gather all his homies and they would bring a trumpet called a shofar. It's like a really long horn, and it twirls out, and it's like, like, you might have come from like a, I went to a church one time. It's the first time I've been to a church that called themselves Pentecostal. I had no idea what that meant, and I went in, and some lady stood up in the back halfway through the worship song and just fired this like, sound. It was absolutely terrifying. It scared me half to death, but that, that's what it is. If you've ever seen one of those, I didn't come from that background. I'd never seen that in my life. But it was this long, curvy horn uh, that old people like to blow. Um, 
but they would blow this trumpet and they would come in and they would, all of the groomsmen would come in and they would celebrate uh, this uh, marriage that was about to happen, this feast that was about to take place. And they would go in and they would begin then a holy fast that would prepare them for this perfect feast that was about to occur. And it was going to prepare them for the covenant moment, the covenant moment. Now, I've said this word covenant like 8,000 times in this message. What does the word covenant mean? I think we have an understanding of what it means. What does it mean? The, the word covenant literally means cutting. It comes with the word bereth. means cutting. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, a really popular thing, or not popular thing, of when you would make a covenant, often you would take an animal, a bull or a goat, and they would cut it, and they would put one half of it on one side, half of it on the other. Let me explain. Genesis 15. Let me just read it to you. Uh, this God does this with Abram, and, uh, but people would do it with each other. It says, He said to him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And here's where God is beginning to establish a covenant with Abram. You're like, why does that matter to me? Well, because it's through Abram that we have Jesus Christ, and that, that matters to all of us. He says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Thank goodness. And verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking uh, fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So, in the Old Testament, uh, when they were going to make a covenant, often, they would take a bull, they'd cut it in half, they put half here, half here, and then they would walk around it seven times. It's a little foreshadowing of Jericho. They would walk around it seven times, and then they would come, and they would stand in the middle and face each other. And they would make a covenant in there about whatever it might be, families, or it might be. And it, it was kind of symbolically saying, if I break this covenant, and the blood that has been shed, may I be like this bull. You're like, wow, that is very extreme. Yeah, I think that's okay to say. And yet, their culture actually took covenant seriously. So maybe not too extreme. Maybe we have just so undervalued covenant, right? Like we have undervalued commitment. Getting someone to show up on time, let alone show up at all, is like fingers crossed. And that's like your best friend, right? We have so undervalued covenant in our relationship. But what was understood then and is still true now is that covenant requires sacrifice. Hear me, hear me. Covenant requires sacrifice. Something, someone must be sacrificed in a covenant relationship. And I understand it was, it, that seems like a big deal to make for a covenant. But can we just say, covenant is a big deal. If you are in a covenant relationship, just because you pretend like it's not that big of a deal, doesn't mean you're right. It's still that big of a deal. Covenant before God is still that big of a deal said, until death. This is what they understood. And you're like, blood was often represented because of what it means when it comes to life. If you don't have any blood in your body, guess what you're probably not? Alive. <laughs> right? That is a shoe-in. Blood was symbolic of life. It's understood. It still is. It's not even symbolic. It is life. And so what would happen is they would come together, understanding till death, understanding this covenant, and here's what they would do. They would do a unity element. Now, uh, you might have done a unity element. It's going to be a little different than theirs. Uh, how many of you guys did a unity element in your wedding? Okay. Uh, you might have done the sand. Did anyone do the sand? That was a big thing for a while. That went out. We'd have the two sands, and you'd be pouring it together, trying to do that. Some people do uh, the candles. That's always my favorite one, because it's like I've— I've always, <laughs> I've never had someone do candle unity element inside. It's always been outside, and it's always been with a clicky lighter. And can I tell you, every clicky lighter is from hell. It is possessed by, <laughs> by Satan, and it will never work when you need it to. You're like, click, 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 click. Like, it doesn't, doesn't matter how much you're focusing. 
right? I'll give you a million dollars if you can get this thing to click. It would have clicked 8,000 times till that moment, and it will not click. And so there's all kinds of unity elements, but the candles and the one flame and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the, here's the unity element they would do. You can consider this. I know janitress and you guys are getting married. Let's consider this one. I know I'm officiating. See what happens. So they would stand together, and a priest would take a sharp knife and cut into their hands. <laughs> yeah? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get one hard pass. Yeah. No, it's cool. All right, well, think about it. Let me explain the whole, let me get the whole thing out before you say no. It's in the Bible. Uh, goodness. <laughs> Uh, but they would cut their hands. There'd be, a, there'd be some blood. And they would hold hands with their spouse. And the blood of their hands would intermingle. And where blood means life and sacrifice and covenant. They would hold hands. And then their hands would be bound together. Like the two become one flesh. We are bound together. We are united together. And in this moment, it would be established that this has been joined. What God has joined, let no one separate. They are joined together. No one's coming between this. We are blood. We are united together. We have, we have entered into a covenant. That blood was the sign of life. It was a sign of sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. God says, I've given it to you. I've given it to you, Israel, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so they understood this. They understood. Now, we know what's, what's coming in the fulfillment of the blood that was shed for us. But they understood that this was symbolic of the covenant made for them together. When I do weddings, I, I like to do communion as the unity element. Because it seems to me there's nothing more important than the very first thing you do to recognize the blood of Jesus that covers you and unites you not only into a covenant together, but in a covenant between you and God. But I like their version. It's, you know, it's extreme for us. But man, you wouldn't forget that, right? You would not forget that permanent covenant right there, right? You would not forget that, that moment until death. And so what happened is after that moment, they would leave the ceremony, and they would go to the chuppah. They'd go to the place that, that uh, the man had built and provided, and then they, they would take a lambskin, and they would lay it down on the bed, and they would consummate their marriage. I talked a little bit this, about this a little more uh, previous uh, two weeks ago, but they would consummate the marriage, and that the woman was a virgin, the man would enter her, and then there would be blood uh, on this lambskin. And they would take that, and then they would celebrate that moment. I know you're like, that sounds so weird. I, I understand. But can I tell you, they just had such a deep understanding of covenant and sacrifice. They had such a deep understanding of what was actually being surrendered, what was being preserved, what was being committed, what was being given in these moments. That is a powerful thing. And sometimes we minimize it because it might make us uncomfortable. But it's still beautiful and powerful. And they would celebrate it. That blood would be shed on that moment on the Lamb. And they would celebrate the covenant that had been made, this pure and holy moment, but that symbolized the covenant with God and symbolized that this covenant was until death do us part. And you might be thinking here, like, wow, that's a lot of talk of blood uh, for a message on marriage. And you're right, it is, right? Some of you are not big fans of the word blood or even hearing me say blood, but blood is what we're talking about, blood, blood, blood. <laughs> yeah. But historically and culturally and biblically, it had such powerful significance because it had to do with life and sacrifice and covenant that it took the shedding of blood for the covenant to be fulfilled. And all of this, can you think about this? It is in our physical, it is in our biology, the covenant that Jesus is going to fulfill on the cross, the shedding of his blood. is in our biology in this moment. It's in our physiology. is in our physical self, this covenant that he is going to fulfill. Contracts bring some confidence. Commitment brings some confidence, but covenant you can be confident in because it costs something real. Because it took something real 
to make happen. This is why the Shulamite woman in verse 7, if you go back to chapter 8, this is why she could be so confident in their love. She's like, no matter what comes, no matter what troubles, no matter what trials, no matter what tribulations, we have a covenant. It took work. We have a covenant established. It took the shedding of blood. It took a mo is an understanding of what it cost and the price that was paid. And so she stands on the confidence of covenant love to say in verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is so important. Marriage is a covenant, but everything that marriage is a covenant of is very clearly, and weddings are a, are a covenant symbol of, are very clearly representative of God's covenant with us fulfilled through Jesus Christ. It's woven into literally the fabric of our existence that he wants to have a covenant with us. Let's look at this. I, I want to explain this. I want to make the connection for you that marriage is a covenant, not only here, but between God symbolically. Okay. It's an arranged marriage. God arranged a way for us to be brought into his family as the bride of Christ through Jesus Christ. Did you know that? You have not arranged the way for, for salvation. People say, I just, I don't know about Christianity because, like, I just feel like you're telling me I don't have a choice. I'm saying, no, Jesus is the only reason you have a choice. So I couldn't serve a God that's sending people to hell. If that's like saying I can't step onto a lifeboat while this one is sinking. Listen, the, the boat of sin is descending into the cool depths of the water like the Titanic ready to swallow everything. The ship of sin is sinking. God says I've come to bring you life and give you an option to give you hope, to give you a choice. You're already sinking. I'm here to give you life. I'm here to bring you hope. And from the beginning, he arranged it. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Listen, since the beginning, God has been preparing and, and has prepared a way to bring you into his family, which means nothing you have done in his life can overcome what he has already done for you. He prepared a way. The bride was purchased with a price. Just as a price was paid signifying the value that must be paid for a life, Jesus paid for our life by his death and the shedding of his blood on the cross. Importantly, that's, I, and I know, I, I feel like we could all be adult enough to talk about this moment. Can we, can we all be adult enough today? Okay. The moment of the shedding of blood in the consummation of marriage is a, is a powerful moment. And if we look at it spiritually, we cannot shed our own blood because we are not pure. All have sinned. All have sinned. Right? If I were thinking of myself in a spiritual, physical crossover, I would be a prostitute. I have sinned. I have given myself over to the lusts of the flesh and things. I've sold my heart away. And yet through Christ, he also shed the blood for me, the blood I could not shed, so that the Father can celebrate my purity. Not because of what I should. I couldn't. There's no physical way. There's no physical possibility. Right? I'm believing we're going to be big enough to make this connection and adult enough to make this connection here together because it's in our bio, it's in our physiology as people that I couldn't pay that price and yet Christ paid that price for me. He shed that blood for me. The blood not on the lamb, but the blood of the lamb was shed for me so that I might be made pure. How amazing is that? He, he made that at the beginning that it might be fulfilled through him. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Listen, I don't know what your understanding of God is today. You might see him as an angry figure. But man, when I see the word of God, 
I see a God who is merciful and gracious and merciful and gracious. And though people turn away, the people give themselves away. He says, I'm always making a way for you to be restored and be renewed. Jesus shed his blood so that we might be reconciled to him. There is no condemnation in Christ. There is only freedom and hope in Jesus Christ. There is only life in Jesus Christ and renewal. If we were to lay down our life to him, he has already laid down his life for us. And so when the Father looks at you, guess what he is? He is pleased with you. He loves you. He cares for you. He is not an angry, distant God ready to throw judgment upon you. He longs for you to step into relationship with him, to receive the freedom and the power of a new life in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, who shed the blood for us, who made us pure, the Father, just like the Father of the bride, is in celebration over your life. There's also a season of preparation. If you're still with me, say amen. Man, you could come forward. There's a season of preparation. I don't know if you knew this, but the church is called the Bride of Christ. That's why we as men of God are encouraged to love our wives as Christ loves his church. Ephesians 5.25 said, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. Scripture says, no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for another. That's what marriage is. It's daily laying down your life for someone else. But he says he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, meaning the church, meaning us, meaning you and I, having cleansed her, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I love this, that Christ receives us in our impurity, in our brokenness, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And he restores, and he renews, and he purifies. And I love the song that says, if I'm not dead, God's not done, right? Daily, daily, he's renewing and restoring and making us spotless. Because we're told just as Jesus went away to prepare a place, just as the groom goes away to prepare a place, he will return to receive his bride. John 14, 3, Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, remember the groom, I got to go prepare a place in my father's house for you. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that, you, that where I am, you may be also. This is so cool. Christ will return for his bride. I don't talk about that very much, but I think it's so important. When we take communion, we not only look back and look now, we look ahead too. As we're receiving of the blood of the covenant, we're receiving of the wine that's symbolic of the blood that is shed. and says, do these things, proclaim his death until he returns, right? Because Christ is coming back. Just as he went to prepare, he's coming back. First Thessalonians said, remember, they go down the street and the, they would blow the shafar, right? They'd blow the, the trumpet, they'd prepare, they would celebrate. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will, be with, so we will always be with the Lord. I'm excited to see what that looks like. <laughs> But I, what I love here is this description that Christ returns to receive his bride and receive his church. You see how the things we do, they're not accidents. And when the kingdom of God comes to earth, at the end of days, the amazing, powerful moment beyond all human comprehension, when the kingdom of God comes to earth and there's no more suffering and no more pain and no more hurt and no more sorrow, we're told that we will be invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, at the wedding after this celebration, you know what they would do? They would feast. They would celebrate. It says we're going to be invited, everybody together, all believers gathered around celebrating together the rich and the poor, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, regardless of what you got in the bank account, regardless of what background you come from. The all believers gathered together celebrating the freedom of the Lord God and the fulfillment of his promise. Revelation 19.6 says, John is seeing in this vision a revelation. He says, then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude. 
like a roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the land has come and his bride has made herself ready. I love this. You and I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus that we might be the bride of Christ, entering into a perfect covenant. And what's amazing is as we reflect on our own marriages, our marriages should, should reflect that love, commitment, renewal, and strengthening that our covenant relationship with God has. It should and we should see in there that sacrifice, that level of sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. We should see that mercy and that grace. That we would have the security in the covenant. That we're not walking around hoping if we do the wrong thing or we hit the wrong trial, that it's breaking apart. But we would have that security in our marriages, in our relationship. And in the Old Testament, when they would get married, they would get married in front of the altar. And that was important because altars were places of sacrifice. Can I tell you, marriages are places of sacrifice. And Jesus sacrificed for us that not only we would have strong covenant marriages, but we would be in a covenant relationship with him. And it is that covenant relationship that strengthens this covenant relationship. And if you need to strengthen this covenant relationship, you need to start with this one. So today I'm going to invite you, would you stand with me today? I'm going to pray two things for you. Would you just bow your heads with me? If you're here this morning, I believe that God wants to establish a covenant relationship with you. He's already died. He's already forgiven your sins. But this morning, you need to choose to begin a relationship with him. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Maybe you, you want that covenant relationship with Christ. You've never received the love that he died to give you. You've never been purified and made new. In fact, even right now, you feel like, man, maybe I've walked far. And you're almost afraid to admit that because you're afraid of some unseen judgment. Even though everyone's eyes are closed, like you don't know. It's just the enemy whispering in. But you want to be made new. You want to know that your heart is secured in His covenant love for all eternity. Maybe you want to, for the first time, begin a relationship with Jesus. That's you today. This is your moment. You're saying, I'm going to begin a relationship to Jesus, or I'm coming back to Jesus. That covenant relationship that He laid down His life for. If that's you, would you just really quickly lift your hand, saying, I'm choosing to begin a relationship with Jesus, and put it back down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray for you today. Would you just agree with me today? If that's you and you raised your hand today, I just want you to agree in this moment. And as I pray over you, I just want to invite you to pray, Jesus, I give you my heart and my life. But I pray right now, Lord, for those who made that decision, who said, I, I long to begin a covenant, covenant relationship with you. Or maybe to restore that covenant relationship with you. Jesus, I thank you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That God, you made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to be the sacrifice for us, so that through the blood of Jesus, we might receive hope and healing. That for every person right now who says, Jesus, I want to begin a relationship with you, that there is hope for the future and healing from the past. That the old is gone. The new has come. In Jesus' name, amen.